Because of that, we can play a lot of new music. Because of that, we can tackle big questions. Because people aren't looking at the program first to see, oh gosh, I don't, I don't really want to go see the symphony tonight if they're going to play Ligeti. They say, oh, I'm going over to, you know, Bill's house. Bill always has good beer. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be spending time with cellist Leo Aguchi. Leo has played all over the world in a variety of settings, from frequent appearances with the Boston Pops and the Portland Symphony, to playing for some of pop music's biggest stars, including Demi Lovato and Peter Gabriel. But being a performer only wasn't enough for him. He had an itch to make music that would move an audience with its intimacy and immediacy, so he co-founded not one, but two chamber music ensembles. And through these ensembles, he began commissioning work from a broad array of contemporary composers. He continues to co-lead both ensembles. They are Sheffield Chamber Players, which is based in Boston and performs in community members' homes throughout the region, and the Willamette Chamber Music Festival, which plays in several organ wineries through its August season. The commissioning and performing of new work remains central to both ensembles, In fact, in each season, Willamette Chamber Music Festival highlights the work of a different composer in residence. Leo created the Unaccompanied Project, through which he commissions new solo cello pieces from immigrant and first-generation American composers. Among the commissioned artists are well-known composers such as Gabrielle Lena Frank and William Bolcom, as well as newer talents, including Milad Yusufi, a recent refugee from Afghanistan whom Leo met while completing a residency in Kabul in 2012. Here, let's listen to a little bit of Leo playing Yusufi's piece, which is titled Anchorage. started our talk by asking Leo how the seeds for the Unaccompanied Project were first planted in his imagination. The Unaccompanied Project has roots in my personal history, um, growing up in, a, in an immigrant family in the Midwest. So you are first generation yourself? I am. I am. My, uh, my father's an immigrant. And seeing, I feel like particularly people in my in my situation where they are immigrant families that are mixed perhaps mixed race you live the immigrant experience in one sense and you also have the privilege of seeing the other side depending on <laughs> depending on situation you know sometimes i'm i'm with my white family and one one set of circumstances happens and sometimes another and I, I feel like you, well, we all, we all chew on these questions in different ways, but I feel like it's, 
a really interesting lens into some of the societal views on immigrants and who's accepted and who isn't. You know, having grown up in that climate and having, especially in my early years where we lived, not known many other, not that many other Asian families or, or mixed, where were mixed you, race. Where did you grow up? In Michigan. And then um, as I started collaborating with musicians and working in other places, and I have a project out in Portland, Oregon, which is, you know, full of half Japanese people like myself. I started realizing here are finally people that look just like me that have absolutely different experiences than me, absolutely different viewpoints. You know, I, I would, I thought, you know, here are my people and I can connect with them. And it's, it's way more complicated than that. So I was chewing on these questions uh, around the same time that the 2016 presidential election was happening and some really nasty anti-immigrant rhetoric was working its way into mainstream political discourse and anti-Asian uh, violence was on the rise. And I wanted to have conversations with people about this. And I kept finding that when I would enter into a conversation with someone about immigration, whether we were well aligned or not in our viewpoints, it was never much of a conversation. You know, we each sort of had our prepared talking points and we shared them and nobody listened to each other and we moved on. So instead of a conversation, it was like a couple of monologues sort of happened and then we moved on. And, and I found that to be really sad because I don't know how we solve any of our societal problems unless we can relate to each other and hear each other. So I wondered if we might be able to connect better through art. So this project was really an attempt to move past the political issues and sort of get to the people and the situations and the stories and the needs that underlie them. And hopefully find things in each of their experiences that we can relate to, no matter how far removed we are from the immigrant experience. Because if we're honest, we are all immigrants. And if we are not, we're native people who have been perhaps the most affected by immigration. So the project is that it's an attempt to step back from the rhetoric and just have a chance to relate to stories of our fellow Americans without words. In the process of hearing these pieces being created, what did you hear was being said? And also a, a, a similar question is, let's say in audience experiences, are there, is there also, is there auxiliary material that accompanies the presentation of the pieces? Let, let me answer the second first. And that is, sure. and that is yes. Each piece is preceded by a, a short video of the composer just sharing just a few words about their story and about the piece. I love that because first of all, it really humanizes this piece of new music that people are about to hear, no matter where I bring it. And second of all, it also allows me to step out of the spotlight of the performance and let each piece be about them, put the focus on that person. So the way the program runs, I usually say a few words to open the, the concert, but then I sit in the chair, just the lone chair on stage, and the eight pieces just run together with the video with no applause. And I get to sort of 
fade into the background and just be the medium for their stories, which is very powerful for me to be able to, to just get out of the way. To the, to the first question, what did I hear them saying in the pieces? I, I heard eight different things. What I heard is that each person tackled the question in a way that was personal. And I should say, I tasked them with a specific question, and it's a clumsy one, but it was the best I could come up with at the time. I asked them each to put their Americanness into sound, into music. And that could be anything. That could be... That's interesting, because the question could have been, uh, put your immigrantness into into sound. Exactly. Yes, it's a very different question. It is a very yeah. different question. I wanted to know what they felt like they had contributed to the country. I wanted to know what the country had contributed to them. I wanted to know what's, you know, what's been left behind, what's been gained. But I want it to be about learning more about what is the same in each of us, if there is such a thing. While I'm not sure there is one thing, certainly there's not one thing, there are absolutely commonalities that we all relate to, no matter our, our background and our experience or our you know, where we live in this country. It's such a big country with so many different, so many different strengths and issues and things that are beautiful and things that are hard. But what they all said was something that came from, from deep inside. And several of the composers took me to task on the question. Earl, <laughs> er, Earl Minion being one of them, Earl, Earl uh, sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm American because I'm me. I grew up, you know, here's how I grew up. And I would have written you the same piece no matter what, because that's my Americanness, whether you ask me the question or not. And I value that. And and further, James Diaz, who's from Colombia, he he really challenged me on just the premise of America, that I was asking this question from a United States-centric place where I think America refers to our 50 states plus Puerto Rico and etc. And he said, look, America is two whole continents with worth of people. The United States does not have... Um, does not have the rights to only use that word. So he really challenged me on that. And he wrote a piece that really explores some different sort of dualities of experiences and meanings that happen at the same time. And you, and that at every moment you have to, you have to choose, you have to choose a path. What does this word mean right now? What is this experience right now? I'd love to talk about how you went about co-founding your ensembles. How did you develop your mission statements, for instance? Oh, boy. Well, mission statements are hard. I, I actually love the challenge of being able to sit down and put all your priorities down on paper. All of the things that you want and love and hold dear about a project, the things you want to have it aspire to, the things that it already does well, and then try to boil it down to a sentence. <laughs> it's, it's daunting and it's also very informative uh, because you can't, you can't include everything. And that actually probably means you, you shouldn't include everything. You should focus on the things that are really the kernel, the, the DNA of this institution you're, you're building. A, a few things that are important to me about both both projects, both the Willamette Valley Chamber Music Festival and Sheffield Chamber Players, is that 
I feel that the people are thirsty for an immediate experience. And I think that that is difficult when we pull them into the concert hall. It's not impossible. And it can be amazing to go to the concert hall. I don't ever want to get rid of the concert hall. But I think that there is a need for something that feels on a more human scale. And I think chamber music really lends itself to that. And I think it's most powerful in small spaces. So for both both groups, we very intentionally play in small venues. In Sheffield Chamber Players, one of the primary components of what we do, sort of the heart of what we do is a series of house concerts, where instead of playing for hundreds of people in the concert hall, you know, a handful of times a year, we, we break that up and we play for 40 people, 30 people, you know, maybe 50 times a year, 60 times a year. And it's- That's a lot more work for you. It is a lot more work. It is, but it is a lot more joy and it is a lot more connection. The way we've set up the house concert series for Sheffield, and this is the second component of what I wanted to say about both both groups, is that we've really worked hard to remove some barriers that people have that they didn't know that they had to, to seeking out chamber music. So in the case of Sheffield, at these house concerts, it feels like a party. You know, it feels like going over to your neighbor's hmm. cocktails. And because of that, we can play a lot of new music. Because of that, we can tackle big questions. Because people aren't looking at the program first to see, oh gosh, I don't I don't really want to go see the symphony tonight if they're going to play Ligeti. They say, oh, I'm going over to, you know, Bill's house. Bill always has good beer. Uh, yeah, uh, let's let's go see what this event is. And frequently, this is and this is our favorite comment. Frequently, people say, you know, I came here with with not thinking I liked classical music, but I loved that Caroline Shaw piece. I loved that Shostakovich. I loved that. You know, it's often the the new music that they're drawn to. That is a really powerful thing. And you think it's just because the atmosphere of the place makes them more open to the experience? I think that is a part of it. We do our best to make it as unstuffy as possible. You know, we encourage people to clap whenever they want to clap. They can come dressed however they want to be dressed. They don't have to worry about parking. They don't have to worry about, um, you know, there's, there are many unspoken rules of the concert hall that frequent concert goers are accustomed to. You know, it's it's a social code that they know. And for people that don't go, it, it's a little daunting. You know, it takes a little bit of emotional effort to put yourself out there and go into a situation that's not its not what you do all the time. And so I, I don't think all that many people are, are willing to, to do that when it's so easy to just sit down and watch Netflix or something. Oh, and, and uh, one other component of this that we have worked hard to remove barriers from is we also make all of those events pay what you can for the guests. So there is not a financial barrier. It can be quite expensive to go to concerts these days. And it's taken a lot of work to create, you know, what is essentially a new financial model for concerts. Yes, which actually I don't want to gloss over that is what is the financial model? How do you support both ensembles then? Sure. Well, and I should say for the Willamette Valley Chamber Music Festival, that the pay what you can model is not possible with the way that we do concerts. But so this is for Sheffield. We're talking. This is for about. Sheffield. We're talking mm-hmm. um, for for the festival. There there are other things that we have to, done to try to provide new inroads and add fewer barriers. But 
But for Sheffield, it really... Because I'd love for musicians who hear this episode, for instance, to be like, hey, who live in a, in a town anywhere in the country to be like, wait, there's a way for me to create, replicate this model in my town. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it would be different in every town. Mm-hmm. But we do ask for a suggested donation for every concert goer. It absolutely can be zero. And some guests absolutely give more. We are also a 501c3, so we do um, fundraising and grant writing to help support. And we also ask for some support from the hosts of the concert. There are many ways to make it flexible in this model where if the house is really full of guests, you know, the average suggested donation can, can cover what we need to pay our bills. And if, you know, it's a host that would like to just cover the cost of the concert, that's also fine. You know, there's there's many ways for us to Right, to because the that. host, she could just decide, I'm throwing a was wonderful party, I'm inviting people to hear this amazing music ensemble. It is, exactly. And we, You're my guest. Exactly. Yeah, we found a model that can be flexible and sustainable. And also, if someone needs it to be, it is. it can be absolutely free for them to come to every concert we do. Are you seeing a different kind of audience than usually attends a larger concert hall? Absolutely. As a result? Yes, absolutely. I would say our audiences skew younger than what you see at, at traditional concert halls. You know, it's very much based on the, the the community of people that come to a specific event are very specific to the host and their networks. You know, if our host is a, a young family, then we may get lots of families. If our host is a retiree, then, you know, we may get people in their peer group. But um, So that makes me want to ask, how do you meet new potential hosts? It's been it's been very interesting the way the web of people has sort of grown organically. Sheffield Chamber Players started as a, a you know a, a one-off concert at the house of a music lover, and it, it was just some friends coming together and you know just throwing it together and having fun. And when we saw how meaningful it was to the people that was that were there, because I mean let's face it, if you are sitting eight feet from a Beethoven string quartet and you're not moved at some point, uh, you, <laughs> you might be dead. <laughs> and and it, we were also really taken aback how meaningful it was for us. And, you know, we started having conversations about doing it. Do How can we do this more? You know, we just started talking to people, you know, if this is, you know, some of the guests that were there, if, if this is something you'd like to do, you know, be in touch. And, and a couple more guests got, or a couple more hosts got in touch and, uh, Slowly, the network has has just grown organically. And what it, a beautiful thing that has happened at this point, this is our, our 10th season, is that we frequently are able to open up some seats at a, a concert for other people on our mailing list that maybe aren't in the network of the host. And slowly, communities from different neighborhoods are, are meeting each other and connecting. And we'll see somebody who, you know, we met in this town is now coming to concerts in this town because they they came to one and they made friends with the host and and we're we're really building organic community in a way that we didn't plan for and and is absolutely thrilling. And so Willamette Willamette works in a different model. It sounds like that's true. The Willamette Valley Chamber Music Festival works on a different financial model. We do we do charge for tickets. However, there we still keep the immediate, personal, intimate. Uh, experience at, at truly the heart of what we do. And we are playing music there in Oregon wine country in a place where there are such amazing wineries with people 
you know, very interesting people that come to, to stop and taste the wine. And I started thinking, you know, how similar these, these two sort of things can be and how elitist wine can be and how, how opaque mm-hmm. can be for someone who doesn't know Absolutely. about wine. And, and classical music can be exactly the same way. And sometimes there's overlap in the communities between the two and sometimes there's not. But I feel so strongly in both categories that the mindset that I need to know something to appreciate wine or I need to know something to appreciate classical music it is is so false. Anyone with an open mind can can appreciate either. So there we're trying to build on just the pure enjoyment of being in a moment together, you know, tasting something, listening to something. Yeah, purely sensual. The wineries must be thrilled then to also, because they probably come up against the same thing about bringing new people in as let's break down the walls. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we have tried to build a symbiotic relationship there where where it's, it's great for both of us. We're we're meeting some of their customers, they're meeting some of ours. And in both cases, we're trying to really make it make it accessible so that you don't feel like you have to know anything. We, you know, we share program notes from the stage so that no matter what we're playing, you have something, something to hang on to. And similarly, I, I pair wines from each winery to the program of music. And I I share my notes about why I think that this particular Pinot goes with this particular Shostakovich quartet. And, and you know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's just one extra level of, of feeling like I can just be here in this moment and just use my senses and appreciate something for, for this moment. Just gather together in a small group and just here right now. This, this wine will taste different tomorrow and this Beethoven string quartet will be different tomorrow. And I'm just here right now. What lessons have you learned from your experience with both chamber ensembles that you think could be translatable to larger orchestras and that would help in bringing in new audiences keeping classical music alive and important to contemporary audiences? That is an excellent question because orchestras, well, let me start that sentence from the opposite direction. Chamber ensembles, chamber music organizations can be quite nimble and flexible and experiment and we're quite agile. And orchestras are very difficult ships to steer. You know, it, it takes a long time to change course. What I think, though, I will start with some criticism of, of the orchestra industry. I find that orchestras are often playing defense to the actual problems. You know, they're worried about people not uh, buying enough subscriptions. So the marketing department gets involved and says, you know, Beethoven sells tickets. We need to do an all Beethoven season or, you know. If we could only get Yo-Yo Ma, you know, then uh, that'll give a boot. And I, I understand that mindset. You know, they have data that Beethoven sells well and that Yo-Yo Ma will always bring a big house. And then in between that all Beethoven program and the Yo-Yo Ma program, they, they're sort of wringing their hands about, about their audiences getting older and smaller. What I wish is that they would shift their thinking out of how do we put a Band-Aid on this problem and get more into the mindset of what does our audience need and want and what do they not even know that they need and want, which is an impossible question to ask. But, you know, what 
what can we present with an artistic vision that is so honest from us and and from you know really truly like the center of our human beings that they can relate to and sometimes that takes experimentation and some things aren't going to sell well and that is difficult but i think programming music by composers of color because there was an uproar post um, black lives matter is is the wrong approach i mean it, it's it, right. it's a, also people can see through it exactly it's a start and absolutely they should be doing it and they should be doing it all the time and if they weren't doing it you know shame on them and but i'm glad that they're getting started but the point is not to just check some boxes and throw some composers of color on the program because you're supposed to the i feel like they sh- need to really stop and, and question and live in is is what what stories need to be told for our community you know what what are some human experiences that everyone can relate to that really tell the richness of our our city of our community of our country you know whatever you know the orchestras are such different things what what the boston symphony programs versus the right the Bat- communities are different exactly versus the baltimore symphony versus the baton rouge or detroit or what you know they are really some have to think very internationally and some have to think very locally and, and probably they would all do well to do both. But I think when they are solving problems from a sort of defensive business end, as opposed to really having a vision that's centered in someone's human experience, then, you know, at, at best they, they just provide band-aids for, for their business model. If you'd like to learn more about Leo and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Please take a second to do all the good stuff and hit the subscribe and notification buttons. We much appreciate it. Also, let me know if there's a change-making artist in your community you think we should profile. You can find me on Instagram at PCTalenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks for listening.